Well, hello and welcome to the JLA cast, a podcast in which we revisit Grant Morrison's legendary run on JLA, arguably the greatest superhero comic ever written, one issue at a time. My name's John and I'm the writer and creator of Afterlife Inc. And I'm PJ and I am the writer of the graphic novel adaptation of Steve Jackson's The Trolltooth Wars. And PJ, they said it couldn't be done, but we're back. Uh, and I think it doesn't quite work out, but this will. This is episode twenty-four. Who said it couldn't be done? Give me names. Uh, well, well, my, my, I'm realizing now as as I as I continue this anecdote that my maths is completely screwed. But I was going to say, <laughs> if we were if we were a monthly podcast, this would be our two-year anniversary. But we're not. No. And we're a bi-weekly podcast, so technically it would be our year anniversary, except we churned out about five episodes at once in around April? No. Was it earlier? When was it, PJ? Uh, I want to say it was March or April. We'd, 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 we'd gone into lockdown. We were in our first lockdown, I believe. It, it was, PJ. I, you know, again, I'm sorry. I've got the data right in front of me. It was the 26th of April. There we 2020. go. 2020. So yeah, not quite, not quite a full year yet. But I don't know. Like 2024 20, feels well. We did issue zero as episode zero as well. So technically, it's our 25th. Um, I'm it's really our bad. three quarters of a year anniversary. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what's the 20? What's the 25th wedding anniversary? Uh, kryptonite. Thank you. Yes, it's our kryptonite anniversary, PJ. <laughs> And it's been a delight. Um, welcome, welcome to the new year as well. Um, we've we've just been kind of catching up off air because we haven't spoken since uh, the incident. Uh, no, I mean uh, before before Christmas. Yeah, this is our our. There have been a couple of episodes already released since Christmas, but this is our first episode we've recorded after Christmas. So we hope you all had a very oh, pleasant God, new right. year. I'm so bad at this. As I'm, <laughs> I'm dealing in the moment for a thing which someone will hear in the future. After the two following episodes, which we recorded prior to our Christmas episode, it's a nightmare. Yeah, yeah we've done this all all out of sequence, but there. But for us, anyway, for everyone else listening, it should be fine. Yeah, unless the world has spiraled even further into insanity. When this I mean, it <laughs> has, but let's not go there. It might actually be in terrible taste for us to be saying like everything's fine <laughs> because it might not be it might be really bad when by when by the time we get there well i think in the spirit of this being our first episode we've recorded after christmas there is one burning question that needs to be asked john uh no i no, i don't know where they're buried that no the, the other question <laughs> i don't know pj what's the question did you, John Locke, receive any JLA-related Christmas presents this year? That's an excellent question, uh, PJ. Um, only tangentially. Uh, so, so the answer is no. Uh, <laughs> but my brother uh, did track down uh, a Morrison, a Grant Morrison graphic novel, which I didn't actually own, which was quite rare. Ooh. He had to um, he had to go into cahoots with Lucy to check my collection, but I now am the proud owner of Annihilator uh, by, oh, it's uh, Grant Morrison and Fraser Irving, I want to say. I, I think, don't I think know that one, I've got to be honest. Not familiar. Uh, well, it's good. It's from, it's from a few years ago. Uh, it's actually published by Legendary, 
who I think okay. is... Okay. Which is like... Isn't that like Guillermo del Toro's production company? I believe so, yeah. Which probably means it's maybe been optioned for a movie. I, I don't know. Almost certainly. Um, it, It's good. It's it's very much like if you, if you fed a hundred Grant Morrison books to an AI and program them to come up with a new synopsis <laughs> it would be the most grant morrison thing ever uh okay it's, it's basically um a washed up hollywood screenwriter named ray space uh is trying to reboot his career amidst a haze of drugs and decadence and orgies and alcohol um and he buys a big crumbling house next to a sinkhole uh, and then he's diagnosed with an operable brain tumor uh, so he's dying, and he's trying to write a screenplay for a film called Annihilator, which is about an anti-hero called Max Nomax, who is in a, in, a, in a sci-fi world who has been exiled to a space station called Dis on the edge of a colossal black hole called the Great Annihilator for a crime he committed against the celestial computer... Varda, uh, and while Ray Space is uh, suffering and coming to terms with his diagnosis and the fact that he doesn't have long in this world, uh, Max Nomax suddenly turns up in his apartment and says, you don't have brain cancer. What That thing that's killing you in your head is a data bullet of my life, which I downloaded into your brain. And if you don't want it to kill you, you have to finish writing the screenplay and get my life out of your head so I can learn how I escaped from The Great Annihilator. That's very Morrison. <laughs> it's very Morrison. Do you know what it also puts me in mind of, though? Do you remember the old uh, the old Mega Drive game, Comics Zone? I, I s- never played it, but saw it. Yeah, where uh, a, a supervillain in a comic swaps places with the guy writing and drawing the comic and starts trying to kill him using the comic and drawing things into it to kill him. Do you know anything more about that game? Like, did it did it have any, at the time, like any well-known 90s comic creators associated with it in any way? Not that I'm aware of. I've I've played, because I've, I've, I've got it on uh, a couple of, I've got a Mega Drive collection on my Switch, I think, and I've got the Mega Drive Mini, and it's on, it's on both of those. And it's a lot of fun, but I don't think it actually had any comic creators that I'm aware of involved with it, no. Thinking back... Wasn't the main character the most 90s interpretation of a comic book creator you could imagine? Sunglasses, ponytail, uh, pet rat. His name was Sketch Turner. Yeah. Um, PJ, I, I have to ask you, did, did, did you receive any JLA-related goodness for Christmas? I did not. Uh, but then I hit the January sales and I bought a couple of bought a couple of DC animated movies. So I bought the old uh, the Batman versus Two Face, where they redo the '60s Batman, the uh, Adam West Burt Ward. Oh, I think it's the last cool. thing Adam West did before he died, uh, with William Shatner voicing Two Face, um, and the Death and Return of Superman box set animated movie. I haven't watched them yet, but I've got both of those. Uh, and I also bought the Superman Smashes the Clan uh, trade paperback collection. Oh, that's um, that's pretty much brand new, isn't it? Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah I, I knew about the radio serial and that they were adapting it, but I didn't read any of the individual issues as they were coming out. But I really fancied 
fancied it, so I thought I'd wait for the trade and uh, yeah, picked it up with some of my Christmas money slash January sales goodness. Um, just just going back to the animated movie of the death and return of Superman. Yeah, that's relatively new as well, isn't it? I think it came out last year. Um, I believe, like like January February last year. I'm not 100 percent sure about that, but because like- it was. Two movies, over two Blu-rays, but I've got a, a box set of both of them. Because the um, uh, the DC animated movie wing, the kind of like straight to DVD mm. uh, division, they're prolific, aren't they? Like they've been churning out tons of these things. Yeah, to the point where this is the second time they've adapted that story. Because no, the very the, the very first movie they released as as an animated straight-to-video movie was uh, Superman Doomsday, which adapted very loosely the death and return of Superman. Uh, But only... It's like an hour long, and it covers all of it. And it's okay at best, I would say. Uh, Whereas this is much closer, so you've actually got the Justice League in it as well, who aren't in the other one. And then when you get to the return of Superman, you get the reign of the Superman, all four Supermen turning up, which, again, wasn't in the other adaptation they did. Um, so I'm curious to watch and compare. But yeah, they, they release, oh, I don't know, every two or three months a new DC animated movies coming out, I think. Because I know they did a lot of adaptations of um, like the New 52 mm. content. Um, here's a question for you, PJ. In the death and return of Superman, was that the first canonical appearance of the, the new Superboy? Or had he yes. been introduced? But no, no. So he turned up in that story, did he? Yeah, yeah. And then it was only later, I think, in like the Teen Titans run, that it was revealed that he was. But he had part Lex Luthor DNA in him. Yeah, they cloned him from the DNA of both Superman and Lex Luthor. Is is the later reveal, which I didn't really like, to be honest. I don't. I, I quite like the idea that he was a Superman clone that hadn't that had gone slightly wrong, had that hadn't matured properly, and powers were a little different because they hadn't got it exactly right. He had then, tactile telekinesis. Yes, I remember he that. did. Yes, <laughs> like he wasn't he wasn't strong. He no, or or was he strong as well? It was all telekinesis. I thought was like uh, yeah. it's. It, I think it's super strength simulated by tactile telekinesis. So he uses the telekinesis to simulate invulnerability and super strength. Yes. And so did he just so is it explained in the story like where who cloned him or where where he or who he thought cloned him? Yeah, time? it's it's Project Cadmus and and his introduction you see him escaping Project Cadmus that's the first thing we see of him. Uh, and it's it's all set up in the um the world without a Superman storyline the one that comes between the death of Superman oh. and then the return of Superman. So cuz cuz yeah cuz uh it is obviously uh, Superboy. Uh, is is his name Connell? Does he go by, or am I thinking of a different Superboy? His name, yes, is Connell. Connell is Superboy's name. Uh, that's the Kryptonian name I think Superman gives him, and then he's also Connor Kent. Connor, that's it. Yes, and so of course you've got uh, Superboy. Uh, you've got the Eradicator, yep. who we've talked about previously, and the Eradicator was a Kryptonian super weapon. Yes, right. You've got Steel, yep. and I guess my question is, was that the first appearance of Steel? Yes. Now, Interesting. 
his his storyline, his background storyline is that John Henry Irons was a construction worker who fell off a skyscraper they were working on. There was some kind of earthquake or something. And Superman saves his life. Uh, I don't know if that incident had actually been seeded in an earlier comic, if you see that, or if the first time it's referenced is when John Henry Irons talks about it. Uh, But as Steel, certainly, uh, that was his first appearance, yes. And then you've got Cyborg Superman, who's definitely an older character as well. Hank Henshaw had appeared in a very different form, uh, but that's his first appearance as the cyborg. Now, Hank Henshaw, as for cyborg Superman, uh, he was an astronaut? Yes. A human astronaut. And, correct me if I'm wrong, his ship collided with, was it the pod that Superman was in when he was a baby? No, I think the story that basically ripped off the Fantastic Four. It was a, a Mickey take. So oh. he and his three friends get hit by cosmic rays and gain powers, but then the radiation starts to kill them. Right. And I think Henshorton is the only survivor in the end. And it does he is he do, are the powers he's granted? Do they make him a cyborg, or or does that come later? Uh, I believe that comes later, although it's been a while since I read it and I can't 100% remember. There's like, um, I always thought it was a bit of a weird overlap between the concept of Cyborg Superman and uh, Metalo. Yeah. Is, is Metalo? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The um, It's like, and I guess my question is, like, is Cyborg Superman predominantly a Superman enemy or, or or does he have a weirder connection to Green Lantern with what happened in is it Keystone City? Uh, no, it's um Coast City. Coast City, that's the one. Sorry, yeah, the one that made him turn into Parallax. Yeah, uh, he is more of a Superman villain. Uh, he always his his appearances in the comic were more in the Superman titles, but certainly once Hal Jordan came back from the dead during Green Lantern Rebirth. After that, Cyborg Superman sort of became a Green Lantern antagonist as well. I don't think he really had many encounters with Kyle Rayner, who, of course, post-Parallax, was the Green Lantern around, so they didn't really have that personal connection. I've got to say, like, as... It's not exactly rocket science going, okay, we're going to take Superman, and we're going to make a Cyborg version of him, so he's going to be part... He's going to look like part Superman and part the Terminator... So it's not that's not like groundbreaking. At the same time, I think it is quite a striking look uh, to have Superman with like a bit of a skull thing going on at the same time. Well, the, the genesis of it was that at the time Superman had four titles. He had uh, Action Comics, Man of Steel, Superman, and Adventures of Superman, I think. And basically each one had a different creative team and each team created their own replacement Superman for the reign of the Superman storyline. Oh, you're kidding. Really? Yeah. So each title for two or three months followed a different Superman and then they sort of started to converge on on one one thing at the climax of the whole story. That is, again, PJ, I'm so glad you know this stuff. (laughs) That's genuinely fascinating to me. Um, I have to say, though, it always kind of bugged me when a character would have multiple titles. Like It's like a small thing to be petty about because I'm like, oh, it's more content of a character I love. But how do you even make sense of the continuity 
there or are you not meant to the superman books were quite clever in this in the 90s anyway because what they had was you had the issue number on them but then there was another like a triangle underneath that number that I i believe had the year in it and then the number for that year so which which issue it was for the year in total so like say action comics would have a one in it and then next week's adventures of superman would have a two in it if that was the next one so well, because was, a, a story fo- was continuing yeah so you you could follow it that way uh but i don't know if they still do that i don't i don't even know what the superman titles there probably action comics that's but, still one obviously but but um, it was the same with it was the same with spider-man for a long time wasn't it there was like yeah. it was like spider-man the amazing spider-man and like I think at one point, like, the web of Spider-Man or something like that? So, in the early 90s, it was, yeah, it was Amazing Spider-Man, Web of Spider-Man, Spectacular Spider-Man, which was also Peter Parker, the Spectacular Spider-Man, and what everyone referred to affectionately as adjectiveless (laughs) Spider-Man. But then I think when they did the, the Clone Saga, that's when they sort of soft rebooted it and... At that point, I think it was just amazing, adjectiveless, and sensational, right? Which replaced either web of or spectacular. I forget. But but, but what yeah. was the creative remit there? Were they like, okay, so Adventures of Superman? We're focusing on big budget action. Um, the the whimsical Superman. We're focusing on heartwarming tales. Like, did was every title meant to be doing something different? I think there was some kind of editorial edict at first, but it very quickly just became, well, this is how we can tell Superman stories on a weekly basis, and there wasn't that much difference. I think there were bigger differences with Spider-Man. So, like, Amazing was your your regular superhero fix. Spectacular was sort of more focusing on the Peter Parker side of things. Web of was supposed to be slightly darker, and maybe Spider-Man would take a bit of a backseat, so it would focus on another character. And then Spider-Man was, hey, let's give Todd McFarlane a book. Right. <laughs> because he's hanging around the office and we need to do something with him. <laughs> we need to do something with him so he doesn't go and create another lawsuit. <laughs> Keep Basically. him out of trouble. Mm. And the rest is history, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, God, what an era. I mean, thinking back, it's, it's hard to imagine the comic industry nearly collapsed. When uh, it was also lean, yeah, uh, no bloat, <laughs> no bloat to be found. Um, but PJ, uh, when we're not talking about uh, mid nineties seminal events and multi-title series, what are what are we talking about this this episode? What the hell are we talking about? Uh, late nineties seminal event and multi-title series, or incredibly early two thousands. This was now. Mm. Now, mm. listener, if you have been with us for the entire ride, you know that what we have, our last episode, the Justice League of America was disbanded at the end of Rock of Ages. We covered that whole story. It was amazing. And then at the end of it, there's no more Justice League. Surely that's the end, you might be thinking. Yeah, no. it's, been f- it's been fun. You know, we had a good run. What we're doing this week is we're going both backwards and forwards in time. And and PJ, potentially even sideways in time. 
Yes, that too. Think about it. (laughs) (laughs) So we are today starting to look at the one-shot graphic novel written by Grant Morrison with art by Frank Quietly, JLA Earth 2. Very much part of Morrison's run, I think, on JLA, but the the way it sort of came out and, and where it fits in the continuity is a bit more nebulous. Y- yeah, yes. Um, it's it's an odd one, isn't it? Like, because... Uh, uh, so, so uh, Rock of Ages uh, concluded in serialised monthly form in February 1998. Yes. Uh, um, before, uh, you know, spoilers, but before leaping right back into the next storyline. You know, fine. Um... JLA Earth 2, a standalone graphic novel, came out in January 2000. Now, uh, I thought hmm. it came out... No, yeah, it was that. Sorry, I thought the hardcover came out in 99 and it was the softcover release in two. But no, it did come out in 2000, didn't it? The, the hardcover release. Well, I think so, because I'm holding... I've got... Um, I have a uh, an, uh, my original copy of it in my hands, a physical Me too. copy. Uh, Titan Books... Um, and this is a soft cover, uh, which is dated March 2001, but the original copyright goes back to 2000. So I assumed that was the series rather than the, uh, first printing of a collected edition. No, of course it wasn't a series though, was it? I'm being an No, idiot. so my, my copy is a DC Comics copy rather than a Titan Books copy. I, uh... And it doesn't give the date, it just says published in 2000, but again it's a soft cover. But I know that there was a hardcover release before this, because it was meant to be the first of a series of annual hardcover one-shots, Justice League one-shots. Seriously? It was followed the next year by JLA A League of One by Christopher Moella? I may have pronounced that wrong. I have never. Good God, PJ! I joke about it. I, you know, I always, I always say, I like to say, like, oh, PJ, you teach me so much. But PJ, you teach me so much. This is amazing. I had yeah. no idea. Yeah. So there was another hardcover book the following year for a similar size to uh, to called A League of One, which basically had Wonder Woman having to go up solo against a dragon of some kind uh, and fight the rest of the league and and incapacitate them to do so for some reason that I can't remember because I've only read that once. I never got a physical copy of it. I've read it digitally. Uh, But then it stopped after that that second book. There weren't any more after that um, because I don't think A League of One did anywhere near as well as Earth 2 did. Well, it's so weird, isn't it? Because um, Morrison's run... On JLA concludes in May 2000 and assuming just because it's the only information we have to go on assuming this that JLA Earth 2 as a standalone graphic novel did come out in January 2000 Morrison only had like four more issues of the main series left to go yeah like it's just the timing which is so it's so odd to me it's like a weird little oddity now, you have to imagine that he, he must have written it quite a way before that because mm. it's 96 pages all illustrated by, uh, well, penciled by Frank Quietly. Uh, in fact, penciled and inked by Frank Quietly, lettered by Kenny Lopez, and then colours by Laura Dupuis and Wildstorm FX. Um, but 96 pages of art is going to take a while. Well, indeed, and, and it certainly is no 
no disservice to Frank Quitely. I mean, one of the powerhouses of the industry. But Oh, yeah. But even by his own admission, he's quite a slow artist because his, I think his work requires so much detail. And um, I think it's a known it's a known thing that there's there's many um, series uh, that uh, Frank Quitely's worked on, um, quite often with Morrison, where um, uh, Quitely has has kind of dropped dropped off after a while because again I think it's the keeping to that monthly pace yeah. is very challenging when your your art has just so much packed into it. Yeah, definitely. But I I think it it means that. In my head, Morrison must have been writing Earth 2 probably soon after Rock of Ages. I mean, that's reasonable. If not, if not around the same time. Which is weird again in itself because, and I will get into this, but like Earth 2 definitely feels like Morrison's JLA. But it, <laughs> we're talking about the team... The Magnificent Seven is the team. Sorry, spoilers. So we're, we're we're right back in the early days of Morrison's run on the series. And yet, I personally feel the characters feel more solid in Earth 2. Uh, yeah. As if Morrison had been writing them for years. So, like, it, it definitely does... It's like, this is... I'm not phrasing this very well, but it's like, it's early days Morrison lineup. Latter days Morrison writing, if that makes sense. Yeah, it, I think continuity-wise, this can only be set between New World Order and American Dreams, because Superman is not in his energy form. He's, yes, he's classic big blue with the red cape and the trunks. So Aquaman does get a new hand in JLA. I think he'll get it during the next the Strength in Numbers trade, where it is it's a gold mechanical hand that. He can still fire off like a harpoon and things, but it's shaped like a hand. In this book, he has his hook. Uh, so there's no other members of the League. Wonder so Woman's this, alive. Wonder Woman's alive. So this has to be set um, basically right after New World Order. It's strange, isn't it? It's so, And again, it's such an oddity. And, and you you saying that like it was... In t- it was intended to be part of a series of of kind of one shots. Um, kind of puts it into a bit more context, I feel, because you know we've we've talked about continuity a lot, you know, and how sometimes it can be a bit of a a, a, a tricky balancing act between yeah. kind of keeping the legacy of a, an ongoing series going while not being while not having too much of a barrier to entry if you haven't read the whole the whole thing. Um, and I, I'm actually surprised you don't see more of this sort of thing, like more kind of just standalone books that were never as individual kind of floppies, for lack of a better word. Yeah, because this this story does work very well as a one shot where you you don't have to have read any of the rest of Morrison's JLA at all to understand it. You could just pick up this book, read it and enjoy it as a story on its own. There's there's nothing else you need to know about other than who are Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, Flash, Green Lantern, Aquaman, Martian Manhunter. That's all you need. Indeed. And yeah, and, and we'll get into this, but I think the story does a wonderful job of kind of uh guiding you through it and not and not insulting your intelligence at the same time, which I think is yeah. which is quite good. Um just a weird little weird little thing that springs to mind. Um I wanna say that in the last 
decade. I think it was certainly post the uh, Marvel movies kind of rising, rising up. Um, I know there was an Avengers storyline. I think it was it was called something like World World at War or something like that. It wasn't um, that earlier one we talked about. Uh, what would we talk about? The one where the one where Ego took over planet Earth. Maximum security. Okay, so I thought that was going to call. I thought that was called like our world at war or something. No, I, um, anyway, uh, it was it was a, it was an original Avengers story um, uh, by by Warren Ellis. Um, uh, and again, I, I've I've not I don't own it. I've not read it, but I know it was marketed as the first ever Marvel original graphic novel, which it wasn't. Which yeah, which I found nearly impossible to believe <laughs> that that was true. I mean, they they date, but you've got X Men: God Loves Man Kills. That's an original graphic novel. The Death of Captain Marvel. That's an original graphic novel. This was the start of a new series of them. I've got a feeling it might have been the first original hardcover one. <laughs> and then yeah, there were. I can't re- again. I can't remember what that one's called either. I've got it. I've read it. But they followed up with there was a Spider Man one, which introduced Peter Parker's sister. There was another Ultron one, uh, sorry, Avengers one, which Rage of Ultron, I think that was called. Um, so they, they right. did a few of those, but I think those have stopped as well now. It's so weird, isn't it? Because I know it's always a big debate or is it a comic? Is it a graphic novel? And, you know, frankly, it doesn't, it's just splitting hairs really. But, yeah. you know, I, looking at my shelf now, 90% of the books on my shelf are collected editions of original, you know, of a, of six issues or so. And I've always comfortably referred to those as graphic novels. Hmm. You know, I've, I have no issue with that. Uh, but yeah, I guess from a, if you're going to be really technical about it, something that's released entirely as a book with a spine is relatively rare from Marvel or DC. Yeah, it's different to... Because DC in the 90s did a lot of prestige format books, which were, I don't know, 50, 60-page comics that had a spine, but they were very thin. You could stick them on your graphic novel shelf, but they're they're very thin compared to a a full collection. Whereas something like this, Earth 2, is much chunkier, and this was much more of a rarity, certainly, at the time. This was... Well, I was going to bring up an anecdote about this book, but I, I wonder whether... Uh, we should kind of get started on it. Although maybe, maybe I should ask: How did you, how did you encounter this PJ? When was your first? Meeting? I can't. I can't remember. I think I read about it in a magazine. It might have been. Okay, there are three options. It could have been. It could have been a review in SFX, or in Comics International, or in Wizard. I'm sure that one of those three I read about it. God, what a time capsule. Yeah. I oddly enough, um I I have said on previous episodes that my first ever graphic novel, uh, JLA graphic novel, was um the final volume of this series was uh World War Three. Um and that's true, and it's also partially not true, because it was a two purchase. It was a, it was a two book purchase, and the other one was JLA Earth Two. Oh, okay. Which I got from uh, an Ottaker's bookshop in Gloucester way back when. And 
I'd gone to, and this is before they went through a period of wrapping their graphic novels in cellophane, so you mm. couldn't read them in the store. Um, this was a period where you could flick through them, and I remember going to the shop one day, flicking through these JLA books, going like, "Oh, I don't really care for the JLA. I'm more of a a Marvel mm. man." And then kind of go reading, flicking through them a bit, and going like, "Oh, I don't like this. This is different and weird." And going home, <laughs> and then thinking about it a lot. And then coming back and taking a punt on it and buying both these books. And it was only after the fact that I realized they were written by the same person. Because I just mm. didn't care about that sort of thing back in the day. I had no idea who made comics. So was Earth 2 then your first exposure to Frank Quietly? God, yes, it would have been. Okay. And I have to say, I think for my young teenage self, it was a little jarring. See, I had a copy of Batman The Scottish Connection, which was an original prestige format that I think was published by Titan Comics under DC. It was a, I think it was published in the UK before anywhere else right. that he drew. The, the story is not memorable at all, uh, but I do remember Quietly's art. It had a very, um, in that one shot... It reminded me of of Frank Miller in Dark Knight Returns to a degree in terms of the the way he drew Batman uh, and the power he sort of gave Batman in that in that one shot. That was the only thing I'd read that he had drawn before. So, but for some reason, when I first read Earth Two, I didn't remember that. Well, I it's weird because I think of the two books I picked up, I had World War Three illustrated by Howard, uh, penciled by Howard Porter. And, of course, Earth 2, penciled by Frank Quitely. And to my, you know, I, I can't really think how old I would have been, but to my kind of teenage self, Howard Porter's art definitely caught me. And I found, I think, Frank Quitely's, you know, incredible to look at, but I think I just didn't enjoy how the characters were, or for lack of a better word, uglier. Uh, yeah. If that makes sense, uh, this it perfectly yeah. does. Perfectly does. Is that I think I do remember thinking when I first read it that I really loved how the crime syndicate looked, but I wasn't so keen on the Justice League. Yeah, I, it's like um, this is a big nitpick, but like Kyle's hair <laughs> is very different. Yes, <laughs> and it's like again, Kyle Kyle's amazing boy band curtains that like Howard Porter drew him with, I was like, he's so cool. Like, you know, I want to be him. He's just, he's just so badass. And then like Frank Whiteley, he's just got, again, more realistic hair, but it's not as cool. If that, and that's all I cared about as a teenager was cool things. <laughs> um, And yeah, and, and I guess like later on, I would go on to uh, collect uh, the authority that uh, Frank Whiteley uh, drew uh, quite a bit of uh, mm. working with Mark Miller. And, I mean, you talk about, like, ugly. Like, you know, the de- and again, not in a bad way, but just, like, the depictions of violence, the the gr- griminess of it. I was like, oh, wow, like, this is kind of, this is good. You know, I, I really liked it, but it kind of, it did take me, it was a bit of a shock for a while, just the way he depicted superheroes. I think it really worked for me when he and Morrison teamed up on the X-Men, uh, I believe in mm. New X-Men. Oh my God, because yes. Because there was some really grotesque stuff in that that quietly drew 
wonderfully. It was repulsive, but in in that really good way, you know, where you're looking at something and say, "This is impressive," and he's he's drawn this, and it's brilliant. Oh my, oh my god! And of course, like the team that would then go on to do work like, as you say, like New X Men or All Star Superman, you know, and you look at the evolution of Frank Quitely's style from something like Earth Two. Which may have been, for all I know, the first time he's he had drawn Superman in a big mainstream production, to then All Star Superman. And I can't imagine another human being on the planet drawing All Star Superman. No, his work on that is utterly beautiful. That is that is a stunning looking book. I think I, that might be the high point of his career for me personally. It, no, abs. No, I agree absolutely. Like, and I, I guess you know it, it really wouldn't hurt to. To, to talk briefly about their partnership, you know, Morrison and Quietly. Like, it's mm. one of those, you know, it's interesting because, like, we, the Western comics world is often dominated by, like, quote unquote, great men. By, yeah. by, by which I mean the kind of great men theory of history that, like, big names shape uh culture or society it's not true it's not true but <laughs> these are the things that kind of like stand out you think oh um this person did this this person did that so we can always reel off all these great creators so like um alan moore morrison gaiman that sort of thing hmm. there's a lot of people involved but these single names seem to like rise to the top um but then you also get occasionally you get these dream partnerships where, uh, you know, uh, often two people, obviously there's more people working behind the scenes, but, you know, a writer and an artist who just seem to work in perfect synchronicity, that they both elevate each other when they're working together. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for I mean, I would maybe say at their peak, Chris Claremont and John Byrne were a dream team. Yeah. I mean, Lee and Kirby, yeah, obviously. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean... I mean, Busick and uh, Perez. You know, I'd say they were they were fantastic yeah. together as well. Definitely, definitely. I wonder if that era has passed though. You know, as I think it was a, it was a smaller playing field back then, and you maybe could get these like Lennon and McCartney kind of pairings. I think it's it's much more egalitarian now. I think. Bendis has a couple of artists he keeps working with, but Bendis also writes so many books every month that that's just going to happen naturally anyway. So, <laughs> I mean, when you're writing 18 titles a month, yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah, there's only so many favorites. artists. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, like, um, oh god, the list goes on. But yeah, uh, quietly in Morrison is like a it's like a pairing for the ages, basically. Yeah, it's, definitely. it's just delightful. Um, but sorry, PJ. That's probably like the longest preamble we've ever we've ever done. Um, should we should we dive into it? Yeah, we we should point out Earth to ninety six pages. We're not covering this in one episode. It <laughs> <laughs> will be like a five hour, six hour podcast. Our bladders, our bladders aren't that big. We're all we're going to split it into three. Yes, we've we've preordained the moments where that will come. Uh, we've got spreadsheets and everything <laughs> all available. Uh so uh yeah so uh listener kind of pull up your uh pull up uh, your chair and your uh your trade paper mac of earth 2 and i guess we'll dive in or your hardcover if you're one of them or lucky your, or people your, or your hardcover if you want to be special uh but pj how does it begin we're on the moon gasp and there's a horrific 
citadel with fire coming off it. This, you know, if you could be forgiven for thinking we were back in Darkseid ruling the Earth territory during Rock of Ages looking at this page, actually. But uh, that's not what this is. There's, it's a splash page, and it's just this tower on the moon with a speech bubble coming from it saying, bad news, he's escaped. And again, I'm I'm suddenly doubting my knowledge of Earth um, Earth geography, PJ, but I, I think if you were paying super attention, looking down at planet Earth, you, you might notice that America looks a little off. It Yeah, it does. That's weird, isn't it? I wonder what it means. Who knows? Um, but yeah, it's just this absolutely gorgeous shot of um, this dark, f- looming, menacing tower on the moon and the words coming from it of, bad news, he's escaped. Your Hello, copy's Peter. very noisy. I'm sorry, sorry. No, I was, I was just like... Turn... <laughs> sorry, listen, we've been having some microphone problems for a minute and I, I couldn't tell if PJ's mic had dropped out or, he, or if he was just kind of pausing in <laughs> and I was just surprised by how loud you turning the page was, that's all. Yeah, sorry, I will try and turn the page in a, in a, in a, in a more dignified manner. Um, but yeah, but we, we just get these kind of like panning shots as we're, the camera is zooming in on just this mass of technology and weird pipes and everything and crackling energy and we it's very industrial and very very foreboding it it puts me in mind of the borg from star trek oh yeah yes actually yeah in fact taken out of context this could be could be a close-up of a borg cube or something exactly but we are no it's not but we are zooming in on a on a window i guess yeah and then on the other side are three shadowy figures uh all of whom seem to be wearing capes, and one of whom has. So it's it's the upside down version of the sh- the shape on Superman's chest, and it's got a U in it. Yes. So these these three figures, uh, two men and a woman, are looking uh, at a great big display screen of uh, the Earth orbiting the Sun. Uh, and they say that whoever he was, the person who escaped, stole some alien machinery in order to escape. They've lost the trail. And the other figure goes, so what do you want to do? And the man in the big cape with the upside down, definitely Superman-esque symbol on the back goes, what do you think? Make the most of it. So I feel like long-term comics fans, even without having seen them on the cover, would now be aware of of what's going on. This is this is the crime syndicate of America, who originally pre-crisis lived on Earth three. Uh, Earth one was the normal Justice League's world. Earth two was the Justice Society, the Golden Age, World War Two era heroes, and then Earth three was the evil versions. And then Crisis came along, and Earth three and the crime syndicate didn't exist anymore. So Morrison brought them back. This is the first appearance since Crisis on Infinite Earths. And I've got to say, like, if there's one revelation from doing this series with you, PJ, uh, that's really kind of sh- shaken me is the is the knowledge of really how close to Crisis we were. Even even in 2000, it was only yeah. like what 14 years yeah. after. I mean, like. Oh, I don't know, from the present day, um, oh, um, Bendis's reboot of The Avengers is is further away. Uh. <laughs> I mean, 
Um, so, yeah, so again, classic Morrison of kind of like diving into weird continuity and kind of plucking something out of it. Yeah, but what I also find weird, though, is how you've got this other Earth with the crime syndicate on it, but 10 years later or so, Final Crisis happens and they're gone again. So it's a very brief window <laughs> where this version of the crime syndicate exists. Yeah, and then in the new 52, there's is there not uh, a fairly early story in that JLA run where the crime syndicate returns again in a new form? I don't know. I haven't read it. I sort of gave up on DC for a I while. Have, the new 52 kicked I've in. I've seen the imagery because I know it's basically, it's for crime syndicate plus more evil members, if that makes sense. I know okay. there's, like a, there's like an evil version of Firestorm who's got like a skull for a head. Oh, of course. Flaming skull head. That's a classic. It is a classic. It's a good look. I'm not going to take that away from him. But it's interesting because I, you, frankly, you don't get whoever the creative team was on the New 52 JLA doing a crime syndicate story, if not for this book here. Was it Jeff Johns and Jim Lee? Certainly they launched the the New 52 Justice League book. Yeah, but I mean, like, you know, Jeff Johns, by his very nature, always has, like, one foot deep in, um, not the paint, uh, um, Retro continuity. Uh, help me, PJ. <laughs> what am I trying to say? So he he's he's this weird mix of obsessed with the stories from his childhood and bringing them back, while also constantly rebooting things. <laughs> he's he's a walking Schrodinger's cat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, it's like much the same way that like I I think as when we talked about Rock of Ages, it's like. I don't think you get Dark Side in Heaven Forbid the Snyder Cut. Heaven Forbid in uh, in the New Fifty Two reboot of JLA. You don't get Dark Side there. I think if not for Rock of Ages, mm-hmm. you don't get the Crime Syndicate in modern times. If not for Morrison's vision of them, definitely not. No, but we cut away from them for the moment, and we see something rocketing towards Earth. A familiar image. I mean, you know, this Earth has, you know, Earth is in the DC universe often has weird little pogs with strange inhabitants landing. This in this a, one even lands in a in a field on a farm where an old truck drives past it. So very familiar scenes here, and an absolutely beautiful shot of this kind of utterly flat kind of let's just say Kansas field uh, with this light coming down to land. Uh, it's incredible, and there's a there's a young couple in the car who are complaining that the battery just went dead, and they cover their eyes as this incredible light shines from the field next to them. And they uh, they go to investigate, and uh, oh look, they find an alien spaceship, and th- you know they know they live in the DC universe because <laughs> one of them says uh, it, it might give us weird powers. I mean, if I lived in the DC universe, I mean, frankly, yes, I would be running towards every crashed spaceship or you know weird artifact or whatever just because you're more likely to get superpowers than some kind of degenerate degenerative medical condition i mean we talked before that in the dc universe being a superhero is an actual career aspiration that normal people can have yes and the batman paradox where if there's a batman in the real world then dressing up as a bat is an insane thing to do in the dc universe (laughs) it is the most sensible thing you could do um but yeah like um 
you know, this couple, they're running towards the down spaceship and uh, a figure emerges, uh, kind of wearing green and purple armour. And as the girl approaches the ship, she goes, oh, and very quietly she says, is he human? Hmm. And we have uh, a voice from this uh, kind of unidentified figure going, how very charming. He goes, uh, I've just reversed across the matter antimatter membrane, anti antimatter, antimatter membrane in a homemade ship, and this is my reception, my dear country cousin. You are human, and scanning revealed is Lex Luthor, who goes, I am Luthor. Now, where can I find the super people around here? It's another splash page because. Quietly has enough pages to play with that he can just take his time with scenes. So you get this beautiful splash of the fully armoured Luther striding out of his crashed spaceship, looking incredibly confident and happy with himself. And it's just wonderful. He's wearing some fantastic... Uh, well, again, a, a nice redesign on the classic Luther power armour. Yeah. Uh, yeah, which I don't think had actually appeared... In comics again since Crisis. Oh my god. <laughs> You're right. It probably hadn't. Because, <laughs> oh my god, was it Crisis that led to the reimagining of Luther as more of a cunning businessman? Yeah, before Crisis, he was, he was just a mad scientist. Yeah, and then it was post Crisis. John Byrne reimagined him as a, a billionaire mogul dickhead, really. <laughs> <laughs> Proving oddly prescient. Um, <laughs> but yeah, here we have um, a very chunky Luther in very chunky power armor uh, under, a, under a full moon. And you're like, Buh? none of this makes sense. But before we have time to process it, we cut to an incredible uh, double page spread of a crashing plane uh, with its engines on fire and Superman, Jean Jong's. And Wonder Woman flying up to greet it. Yeah, there's no dialogue or anything on this page. It's literally just the three of them flying up towards this crashing plane. Uh, which gives me an opportunity here to say that I think my two favourites in terms of the way Quietly draws the League in this comic uh, are his interpretations of Jean and Aquaman. Oh my god, yeah, I was going to say the same thing. Like The way he draws Jean is, is, is amazing. Absolutely yeah. amazing. And again, maybe it's because, you know, oversimplification, but Jean is an alien and he's meant to look a little inhuman. And maybe, particularly at this point in his career, quietly he's very comfortable with that. Yeah, very much so. But you also get the roll call on, on this page. And I think this is quite interesting as well because you get the Justice League of America. And on either side, you have, he's listed in this book as Jean Jones, the Manhunter from Mars. And then at the other end is Aquaman. And then um, the rest of the League, Superman, Wonder Woman, Batman, Green Lantern, Flash, underneath them are the crime syndicate of America. Ultraman, Superwoman, Owlman, Power Ring, and Johnny Quick. So already, Morrison said, this is who's appearing in this book. You have the five members of the crime syndicate. There is no counterpart for Jean or Aquaman in the crime syndicate. He's, he's sort of already telling you in a way what's coming. Yes, I was going to say, like, there's a way of telling this story where you keep the mystery going a little longer. And I, th I think I find it interesting that they just went straight in with it. 
you know, they're just like, hey, look, it's the crime syndicate. Yeah, you know, no surprise. Like you, yeah, some of you might even remember them. You know, so it's it's kind of interesting. Yeah, but I quite like it because it means you can just right, bam. This is the story we're telling. Let's get straight into it. And he does, as over the page, Superman, Wonder Woman, and Jean get to work trying to save this plane. I'm just going to put it out there. I love this scene. Yeah, it's brilliant. Because it's for JLA working as a team, but also using their powers in a very creative and interesting way. Yeah, so you get Superman using his heat vision to separate the wing and the tail from the plane because those parts are on fire. Uh, yeah, and um, Jean is uh, telepathically linking everyone, so all the conversation is happening uh, in their heads. And you have uh, Kyle, who Kyle's here, everyone as well, uh, generating uh, a massive um, fan, like a desk fan, to blow the flames out, uh, so that uh, Jean and Wonder Woman can get close. And Jean says he can't detect any brain activity in the plane. Uh, Wonder Woman says no one's conscious, so, the, but the cabin's rolling and depressurizing, so she needs some help. And Superman straight away, look, give me a moment. I'm just putting this wing down. <laughs> yeah, and we, and again, I think there's few artists working even today who could depict uh, weight and mass as well as Quietly does. Yeah, because yeah, again, you just get this incredibly understated shot of superman maybe only a few meters above the ground like catching or lowering this colossal plane wing it's 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 really amazing uh but then he flies back up towards the plane as people in their seats start flying out but you also see the panel before that where wonder woman has used her lasso to try and hold on to the plane to stop herself being sucked out and has got a seat in her hand with a child in it. Everyone is not only unconscious, but they're like covered in trays of plain food and <laughs> they don't look well. But you've also got the empty brackets where seats have been sucked out and well, it, it's a bad scene. I want to actually debate with you, PJ. I I read this scene as being Wonder Woman is intentionally ripping the seats out and throwing them out the back of the plane. Oh, that's possible. Yeah. Now, the the reason one the reason I think that PJ it's not that Wonder Woman is committing genocide. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's it's because um, Kyle and Superman are catching 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 all the seats. Uh, Superman is carrying about uh, four unconscious bodies, uh, hopefully unconscious bodies, on his arms, whereas Kyle has generated a flock of flying monkeys to catch all the seats. And I love that. I feel like Quietly is one of those artists who just goes for the imagination when it comes to Kyle. Like someone puts in a script, Green Lantern catches these people and Quietly goes, well, what should I use for that? Uh, flying monkeys. Yes, because um, <laughs> while it's easy to write in the script that Kyle generates a flock of flying monkeys, um, I think the artist would probably kill you. Um <laughs> Frankly, I do think that uh, Quietly delights in the details because, again, you could have just had a green glow around him, but this this looks astonishing. It really does. It really does. And Superman's worried, though. Kyle says, where are we putting them? Superman says, Flash is generating a cushion of pressurised air below us. Lower them gently. 
But then he says that he can't hear any heartbeats. And don't forget, this is classic Superman with the super hearing. This is an energy Superman who'd probably feel a heartbeat through an electronic pulse or something. This is a dude with super hearing. Yeah, he. Uh, I'm sure Electric Superman would be like, I can't sense any nervous activity, maybe? Ele- ele- electricity, that would work? Yes. Uh, I also like, and this is a really small thing, but like, again, just talking about how the powers are being used creatively and also just how powerful the League are, I think this scene also demonstrates uh, some of their limitations quite well. And how they how they support each other as a team, because you've got uh, Wally down on the ground doing a classic flash maneuver of running really fast in a circle to create like a little tornado thing, and the bodies are very gently kind of floating down. Um, and when we're on the ground level, we have all the seats perfectly rearranged like they were on a plane, which means to me that Wally went to the effort of of doing that. I guess I bet he's he's put them in the right order as well. Yeah, you're right. He probably has. Uh, and Wally is rooting around people's wallets because you know Flash Flash needs to get paid. He's uh, he's a thief. He's a thief basically. <laughs> uh, but yeah, he is. Um, he says he was checking everyone for ID, which is the lie that Wally always tells people when when he's caught stealing. Uh, and the weirdest thing is that he's found a dollar bill with the face of Benedict Arnold, where George Washington should be. And looking closely at the dollar bill, we see that it says, In Mammon We Trust. Which is weird. And and America, United States of America, is spelled with a K. That's also weird, and I missed that. That probably would have been a more obvious thing to bring up. Um, Wally does also point out that all the people from the plane are dead. Uh, Oh, yeah, sorry, yeah, um... Yeah, it's an important that. detail, but <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. We, don't bury the lead. And also, of course, this could come out in January two thousand, possibly. Yeah. So we have to know the time period. And when Wally says, "Anybody else hearing that little X Files whistle?" Uh, that would be a more culturally relevant reference at the time. I feel. Yes. I yeah, still these get days it. he probably would say something like, "Does anyone else hear that?" I don't know. What's the modern equivalent of the X Files? TikTok. That that TikTok whistle. <laughs> yes. <laughs> everyone, everyone else thinking of a really spooky vine right about. <laughs> um, sorry, yeah, but um, what I was saying is, what I was trying to get to the point, not very well, was Flash incredibly powerful but can't fly, yeah, so he's making himself useful, and Kyle incredibly powerful but not super strong. So again, he's using his powers in a very creative way and not just like catching the plane or something like that. So I like how they support each other and they all deserve to be on the Justice League. Sorry, yes. that's the end of my TED talk. And uh, Superman and John are crumpling up the wreckage of the plane, I guess, to make it more <laughs> manageable. I mean, um, maybe they should have left something for the crime the flight investigators to look at perhaps but they've very daintily crunched the entire plane into a neat ball but uh, superman is already saying so could these people come from another dimension and john's like speculation and then telepathically contacts aquaman who is in the ocean on the atlantic seaboard there's a bit of plane that he is called what looks like a kraken 
to come and drag down into the ocean. And Aquaman says, how come the one piece of wreckage you missed landed on my roof? Which also says to me that the other factor of why this book is set just after New World Order, because it doesn't feel like Aquaman's a full part of the League here. He's a bit reluctant still. And also, uh, I guess, and even if he were, there's perhaps little he could have done with a falling plane, I suppose. Yeah. He could have summoned some flying fish to help. They'd have to be very big flying fish. I know. That was a low blow. I like Aquaman. I've got nothing against him. Like a flying megalodon. <laughs> That's what he'd have to summon. Yes. Um, I don't think that was a thing. But talking about, you know, you mentioned like, you know, their personalities and where this maybe sits in the greater continuity. Kyle is still definitely at his kind of slightly insecure stage. This is uh, this is Kyle, a bit greener. Uh, I don't get it. Because he's he's Green Lantern, huh? Huh? PJ, a plane full of people just died. No one gets me. <laughs> um, yeah, but Kyle is like instantly thinking, "Oh, everyone's dead. What did we? We must have screwed up. What did we do wrong?" And Wonder Woman, uh, who is uh, taking uh, taking a body down from a flying monkey but in a very dignified way, uh, says, (laughs) they were already dead, Kyle. They were dead when they arrived here. And Kyle's just like, yeah, but but what killed him? What's going on? And so Wonder Woman says, look, we're going to investigate. We'll... And then she finds something unusual and she turns and says, their hearts are on the right-hand side of their bodies. (gasps) Gasp. Which, uh, that's unusual, isn't it, PJ? I think this might be... Wait, hang on, hang on. Uh, yeah, no, mine's on the left. <laughs> you t- so you, you, what you're saying, PJ, is that you do not have situs totus... Uh, was it situs invertus totalis? Which is the rare genetic condition where your entire body is laid out the other way around. So my right hand would be my left hand? Yes, well, I mean, it would, you possibly wouldn't know, but all your internal organs would be the <laughs> other way around. No, I didn't even know that was a real thing. It is a real thing, and I think um, it's, it's it's one of those weird bits of medical trivia where you can maybe write an interesting episode of CSI New York out of it, or something like that, where it's like, oh, that's a fun thing. doesn't really mean anything in the grand scheme of things, but yeah, there's like five people on the planet whose body is the other way around. <laughs> that's... Are we sure they're not from an alternate reality and they've just lied about it being a medical condition? I mean, we can't say with certainty... So, yeah, and it's a little known fact that most people whose heart is on the other side are just lying constantly anyway. Yeah. So, think about it, listener, you know. Mm. Um, but back on ground level, uh, Jean is, um, I guess, kind of just like working out because he's just kind of like crunching a bit of metal into a neat kind of bowling well, ball he says size. he says the wreckage is safely disposed of so i'm assuming that that is that ball is the entirety of the plane and he's just no. smushed it right down him and superman oh i smush it no i i want to say that you're joking but you might not be it they might actually have crushed an entire i mean plane. look how buff jean is in this scene as well that's oh my god pj that just when Yep, maybe. It's entirely possible. <laughs> I mean, if he were to drop that now, it would cause an earthquake. It'd be like yes. the densest piece of metal on the planet. 
Um, but they did salvage the flight recorder. Yeah, and Superman takes a look and he says he reads something about a call for help. And then he reads something else and it's the name Luthor. But then Aquaman calls them and he says, uh, there's something odd about the plane. And as it's being dragged into the ocean, we see on the tail, the plane has a burning cross on its tail. And it turns out it was the KKK Southern flight. Krusty's Crimbo Classics. Yeah, why not? KKK? Oh my God. (laughs) So Aquaman tries humour. It says, yep. whatever it is, it doesn't look like the 830 LexCorp Gotham to Atlanta flight. Yeah, so, I mean, again, the JLA, they, they're professionals. They've dealt with a lot of weird stuff. If I were them, I'd be like, okay, we've got an alternate reality case. Like, just right off the bat. Like, yeah. it, could, it couldn't be anything else. Um, and then we cut to the LexCorp, uh, LexCorp building. Uh, in gorgeous Metropolis. Uh, And I want to say, PJ, and I might be wrong here, that this is the first time the LexCorp building has been depicted in this way? Am I I dreaming? It's incredibly distinctive. As an L, do you mean? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't remember. Part of me wants to say it has been drawn that way in the Superman books in the 90s, but I could be wrong. I can't remember. I'd have to go back and check. Well, it's a, hell of, it's a hell of a design anyway. Uh, but yeah, it's a gorgeous day. And Lex Luthor is coming into work. And as he puts his hand on a kind of palm scanner, which identifies him as Lex Luthor, uh, he tells his secretary, uh, cancel all my appointments today. Tell the president I love him very much. Uh, my office is off limits to everyone but me today. I just uh, want to point out his secretary specifically is mentioned as being Miss Tessmacher in in this, which I do love. Do uh, do 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 we know Miss Tessmacher in greater continuity? Uh, only in terms of Miss Tessmacher was was Luthor's female subordinate in Superman the movie, and he keeps shouting Miss Tessmacher. But again, PJ, another brain nugget from you. I had I had no idea. Listener, you don't know the value you're getting from every episode with PJ here. <laughs> um, but again, if it's, I was going to say, if there's one thing, if there's one thing Frank Quietly does very well, it's a sense of weight and mass. If there's two things he does very well, it's architecture and geography. Yeah. Because Luther's office is stunning. It's huge. Of course, it's right at the top of the building. Uh, I just I love his desk. Now, if you if if we want to talk about visual storytelling and what Luther is like as a person, his desk is a redwood tree trunk. Yeah, um, possibly thousands of years old, uh, a real treasure of a natural world, and Lex Luther has cut it down to make a desk. It's it's a statement, but it's also. An awesome desk. It is, and there's a fun little thing, PJ. Um, in no greater continuity, but the Morrison Quitely verse, as Lex Luthor comes in, he addresses Einstein, who is a like a a statue uh, bust of Einstein's head, which appears to be like his personal AI computer, and this pops up again in All Star Superman. 
Oh God, it does. Yeah. Yeah. It's, there again, we go. Just you know, a little, a weird little throwback to anyone who was kind of paying attention. But uh, Luther asks Einstein to keep trying to hack the JLA Watchtower computer, and he also talks about how his counterpart almost escaped this morning, so re-encrypt the locks. We need him in there for another 48 hours. And he's also interested in the aircraft that reversed over this morning. Whatever that But means. then he, he, he also <laughs> diverts funding from the armaments division to Greenpeace and gives all employees a 200% pay rise. <laughs> And again, he says, and, you know, as he's barking orders at Einstein, he says, finally, open a secure internet connection. Thank you, Einstein. And I can't imagine Lex Luthor ever saying thank you. So I think I think something weird is going on, PJ. Well, luckily, we're about to find out because outside his window, and it's, again, a lovely huge panel, Green Lantern, Wonder Woman, Superman and Jean are all just hovering there. And there's a moment where Luther hasn't seen them, but he realises they're there. He looks up from his computer and just says, ah, as Superman says, open the window, Luther. And again, it's interesting because uh, at the end of uh, Rock of Ages, we had a very similar scene where Superman uh, confronts Luther in his office. And uh, it's, it, it goes very differently. It goes very differently. Yeah, very much so. Luther just lets them in. Tells them he was expecting them. And Superman says, well, then you know why we're here. And Lex says, of course I do, which is more than you know about me. And he also says, uh, again, I like the fact he doesn't, there's no pretense, kind of doesn't try to mix words or anything. He knows the JLA know. He knows why they're here. And he goes, look, the aircraft had nothing to do with my arrival, at least not directly. I tried to help them. And Luther looks at Superman and goes, you looked so like him, and yet, dot, dot, dot. And then we get some science from Jean, as he says, can you see the unusual modifications at every eighth angstrom in his DNA? He also has several sophisticated telepathic locks protecting his thoughts. I yeah. often look at the uh, the angstroms in people's DNA. That's one of my favourite hobbies. You are very judgmental in that way. Yeah, yeah. Um, but Luther... Uh, doesn't appreciate having his uh, his DNA x-rayed and, and goes, look, I'm not a lab rat. And he goes, well, actually, he kind of like very quietly under his breath goes, the Justice League, God below. And he goes, my name is Alexander Luther. And Superman, <laughs> and Superman has absolutely had it with Lex's bullshit and grabs him <laughs> and grabs him by the lapel. Yep, and he just shouts, I know what your name is. I'm tired of your deceptions. 300 people are dead. What have you done this time, Luther? And he just goes, Alexander Luther. <clears throat> I lost my voice there for a moment. Oh, well, it is quite, it is quite shocking. It was good delivery, though. <laughs> and he grabs Superman's wrist. And Superman looks shocked because it appears that Lex is, if not as strong as Superman, certainly has some degree of super strength because he's able to move Superman's wrist. Yeah, and basically just lays it out straight away. He says, my Earth orbits its star in a counterclockwise direction. Here it's summer, there winter. You know this is true. You saw the bodies. I was born in an antimatter reflection of your universe. Where I live, good is evil and vice versa. Look at my heart. You saw the evidence from the plane. And Superman straight away just 
knows that he's telling the truth because he, he recognizes the physical strength this version of Luther has and x-ray vision he can see his heart is on the wrong side so he just says who are you <laughs> and I like that Jean just goes perhaps you should come with us Mr. Luther and um, uh, Luther Alexander Luther uh, presses a button on his desk and a hatch opens to reveal his uh, power armor which we saw before and he goes thank you I was hoping for an invitation and as he takes his jacket off, and this is a nice little touch, mm. he, he starts undressing, walks towards his power armor, and goes, Miss Teschmacher, I've deposited $80,000 into your account. Take a nice vacation somewhere warm. <laughs> so straight away, this isn't the Lex Luthor we're used to. I do like... This is a very different Lex Luthor, obviously. And we don't see, um, quote-unquote, our Lex Luthor in this story. But I do like that even though this is a uh, a good Luther who doesn't have that same megalomaniacal kind of drive, he is being a bit of a dick. He it- still has the Luther <laughs> arrogance. <laughs> yes. He's he's a good guy, but he's he's not he also I think he'd sort of say, you know, I just know how good I am. And yeah. I'm being honest, you know. And, he's, but, and but- he's he's taken he's taken every opportunity he can to screw over his counterpart as much as he can in a short space of time. And, you know, with Lex, all this money, this is just a drop in the ocean for him. It's not going to financially hurt him, but, man, is he going to be pissed. I think it's the the principle of the matter, isn't it? I don't think think Luther would be giving pay rises out very frequently. (laughs) I can't imagine working for LexCorp is a fun job. No, but I mean, the job security, I mean, it can't be good. I mean, superheroes would be smashing up all of your secret facilities every every day. Um, but PJ, we transition with with no no fanfare or caption to, I'm guessing, a very different version of Metropolis. Yeah, it's much starker, grimmer, the, the weather's not as nice, and the Daily Planet has a red globe on top of the building it's it's you know if if it weren't for the daily planet i'd swear this was gotham that's a very good point pj yes um and maybe it's just not in shot but there isn't like a LexCorp tower visible uh and uh, i think obviously just the great work that vaxer quietly did but like metropolis metropolis looked absolutely beautiful on the previous few pages, like just absolute glorious sunny day. And yeah, it just looks pretty grim here, for lack of a better phrase. Yeah, it's unpleasant. And then we cut to a close-up of a child in the street looking up into the sky with a smile as a policeman, but the officer dressed very much in black riot gear. Uh, It's not your friendly (laughs) street-level normal policeman. (laughs) Well... We won't get into that. Um, but then the, the shot pulls out and a, a fat man with a camera has stood on the child and money is starting to fall from the sky. And basically we keep pulling higher and higher as a riot explodes over this money that is falling through a circle in the clouds once we get to the final shot from, from very high above. Yeah, and as we turn the page, we get this incredible double page spread of well i i 
I don't know quite how to describe it. Like not quite a satellite, but like a some incredible floating viewing platform thing, which I believe is referred to as the Panopticon. I think this is something else because the Panopticon is that not the Crime Syndicate's watchtower, their their moon base? I thought they were two separate things, but Lex. But I'm not. I, I can't say that with certainty. So because I because Ultraman did earlier on make reference to his fortress. So I I thought this might be his fortress. Well, I, whatever it is, it's a very cool, floating, weird, like streamlined kind of thing. Maybe not quite in space, but kind of just in the very high upper atmosphere. Yeah. And again, Quietly has an amazing way of drawing technology. Like, it's not cluttered at all. It, it's like, um, a bit like if an iPod was a spaceship. Like, it's it's very, lots of smooth panels, quite kind of modular. It's It's really interesting to look at, actually. Yeah, and you can just sort of see as well the last few banknotes falling from below it. As a speech bubble says, by the time they realise the notes are fake, the economy will be in ruins again. And standing on the balcony, I guess, for lack of a better word, is... Well, he's been introduced in the in the roll call, but it's Ultraman, uh, who is just tossing money off the edge uh, and looking incredibly just disdainful and he says and no luther to struggle and fail as he always does i'm almost bored and then he's approached by brainiac who apparently is his slave here and he just says why are you here to spoil my day and brainiac basically just says uh we we've sort of partially succeeded in following luther's trail yeah Brainiac seems very nervous. Yeah, but Brainiac is 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 certainly not a commanding figure. Uh, a bit kind of like snivelling and pathetic, I suppose. Yeah, it's not. I mean, none of them are, but it's not the Brainiac we know. Whereas, whereas this universe's version of Luther is a good guy, but he still has a lot of the arrogance and some of the same traits as our Luther. As far as Brainiac goes, he's almost unrecognisable. Well, speaking of, I mean, could we talk about Ultraman for a second? Because yep. um, in this particular depiction of him, he he is almost identical to Superman, like in, in terms of like physical physical appearance, at least. Yes, his costume is the, the the U on the chest instead of the S, and the the shape is upside down, but it's the same blue, the same cape. He doesn't have the trunks. He's got these weird metallic circles around his waist instead. Um, and a couple on his elbows, but other than that, I I actually love Ultraman's costume. Like it's it's so weird in a way. It's like it's weird to see this version of Superman's costume without any of the trimmings. It's like he is just wearing a massive body sock with a cape and gloves. Which remember, Superman does not wear gloves. Ultraman does. Yeah, in fact, actually, come to think of it, I've, I've just spotted a uh, a colouring error on the following page where he briefly doesn't have gloves. Oh, yes. I've never noticed that. Me neither. But that's jumping ahead. 
At the moment, he's he's saying to Brainiac, there's no such thing as a partial success, as he looks down at Metropolis, where one man is screaming about how the money's fake, and it's more crap from Ultraman, and he can't take any more of it, and Ultraman incinerates him with his heat vision from afar. Yeah, um, it's like, again, blinking, you miss it between panels sort of things, because everyone's rioting, they're it's really ugly, they're just kind of beating the crap over each other, scrabbling for this money, and then suddenly there's just like a greasy smear where this guy was, um... And and in a great close-up of Ultraman's eyes with, like, the heat kind of, like, draining out of them. And he just goes, they insult me within earshot. They know what to expect. Big Brother is watching you. And then just asks Brainiac to continue. So he, he, he Brainiac says they verified the existence of a matter counterpart to our antimatter continuum. So they found the Justice League universe where their version of Lex Luthor has gone. And Ultraman quite rightly says any contact between matter and antimatter would result in complete an- annihilation. And Brainiac's just like, yeah, but Luther converted the matter cannon from your armory and basically pseudoscience to explain why that hasn't happened. <laughs> yeah, and I, I can't, what I like about this story is um, it's played completely straight, the idea of a reverse universe. Um because it makes absolutely no sense why this universe would have discovered a concept of matter, but called it antimatter. <laughs> like you can't have antimatter without a concept of matter, sure, surely. Except in their universe, anti is the positive side of things. It's yeah, no, it just go with it. Just go with it. Don't don't think about it. Um, and Ultraman. Uh, is already ahead of the game. He knows they've done this ganks a hundred times. It always works this way. Luther is trying to find a weapon to use against him. Um, And it's very subtle and nice detail, but you get a sense of the geography of this vessel uh, because there's like a, a, a hole in the ceiling and like a kind of central shaft. But if you can fly... You'd have absolutely no need for a ladder or a staircase. Mm. So it's just a hole for if this is a home for a super person. And as he as Ultraman just kind of like flies up into the next chamber, you get this great shot of I guess kind of all of all of Ultraman's kind of trinkets and treasures. It's like his little trophy room, isn't it? You've got what looks like a lump of kryptonite in a device very central and prominently in the chamber. And then like these weird there's a cage with i'm guessing that's like a, a earth 2 version of gorilla grod experiment well, we, 773 well we do see that later do we not yes we do actually you're right mm. but then there's some skulls in tubes and like a almost looks like a robot head could be metallo and a hand and then a different take on jay garrick's flash helmet there's a, a bundle of keys. Yeah, you know, so again, not it's not immediately obvious what these all kind of like relate to in the classic DC universe, but it gives enough of like uh it evokes enough of a world to suggest that Ultraman has had a pretty long and storied career in his own world, I guess. Yeah. And he flies off calling a meeting of the crime syndicate. And we get like a final, just a sinister little shot of Brainiac with his kind of like sunken black eyes. So, mm, what could it mean? 
so yeah, so we cut suddenly. Oh, yep, no, you're completely right, PJ. I see it now. Uh, <laughs> we we cut suddenly to the JLA Watchtower, which is beautiful by comparison. Yeah, I do. Quietly does a brilliant job of differentiating the the two worlds. Our world is all I say. Our world. I don't live in the DC universe, but you know what I mean. Is is all bright and shiny and and hopeful, and there's there's colours and it's lovely. And then the the crime syndicate's world is dark and grim and gritty. And basically, the the crime syndicate's world is is the Zack Snyder take on the Justice League. <laughs> I mean. It would be a hell of a twist. <laughs> I mean, like, what a poker face if it did turn out that, you know, at the end of the Snyder Cut, just the, the regular JLA step out of a portal. <laughs> that would make it all worthwhile. I mean, it would be incredible, wouldn't it? Um, but yeah, but um, Luther is getting the tour of the JLA headquarters and uh, he's a bit kind of you know, overcome by it all, really. He goes like, I have attacked the crime syndicate's panopticon headquarters on the moon on a number of occasions, but your watchtower is is very different. Um, and, yeah, and we get, like, um, a brief kind of shot of, like, the JLA's treasures, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, and it's... I remember one of the secret files and Origins had like a, a cutout of the <laughs> the watchtower had actual schematics. So, but this is you still, still see it from the air. But I know one of those rooms is a swimming pool, uh, and Aquaman's got deep water tanks as well, which are underneath the main swimming pool. <laughs> and there's living quarters and everything there. But it's a lovely look at it from above, just to sort of see all the different components of it connected up to the central dome and then the tower. PJ, um, I, I don't I don't want to interrupt. But I've just discovered something in one of these panels, which I've never noticed before, which I feel may throw our theory about where this book sits into utter disarray. Oh, no. There's Prometheus's helmet. Wait, what? Oh, my God, there is. In panel two. But no, this doesn't work. It doesn't make any sense. No, it doesn't make any sense. Um, This can't be set after. I think we should not think about that. Do you know what? I'm going to assume that's just a, a nice little ha ha ha, look what I've put in here joke on behalf of Frank Quietly. Like in the first issue where the uh, the Hyper Clan executed Doctor Doom and Wolverine. Yes, exactly. No, it's nothing, it's nothing to think about or worry. It doesn't mean anything. Um, yeah, because that might also be... I thought for a minute there might also be Aztec's helmet there, but that doesn't make any sense. No, that's not Aztec's helmet, no. no. But, yeah, we haven't even met Prometheus in the main series, PJ. That doesn't make any sense. I think the helmet next to Prometheus might be... I think there's a new god's character called Mantis? Yes, I was thinking the same thing, but I didn't want to say Mantis in case that was something else. But no, that is... Yeah, I know the dude you're talking about. He's, And I think there's... I think there might be, like, an Amazo or Amazo kind of yeah. standing there as well. Yeah. They're walking through the trophy room and, and Luther's basically telling them the history of Ultraman who, on his world, was a human who was a deep space astronaut that everyone thought died when his ship imploded into hyperspace. But then he came back and something out there had attempted to repair him with only limited understanding of human physiology. So, unfortunately, they gave him a superhuman body and then sent him back home 
But his mind had become twisted and evil. It's it's interesting, and I don't think you're meant to think about this too much. Which, again, I like that the story just takes it at absolute face value. Because it doesn't make a lick of sense why a human in Earth 2, on the other world, uh, why a human who was born on Earth and blasted into space, given superpowers, and then came back to Earth, would look identical to Superman, who was born on another planet. Like, I don't think you're meant to think about that too hard as to why that would even happen. No, not at all. But again, it's like it's weird. But, you know, for whatever reason, this world also spawned five incredible superpowered beings who are very similar to the ones we know and love. And Luther says, look, I'm, he begs them. He says, I need you to come back and end the tyranny of the crime syndicate. And then Batman turns up and just says, no, we're not doing that. we got our own problems. <laughs> yeah. And again, hey, everyone, Batman's here. Just, you know, <laughs> he just kind of walks up and is just Steps being... Steps out of the shadows. <laughs> and again, he's a... And again, this is a very small and petty thing, but I remember as a, as, as a teenager going like, oh, I don't like this Batman. His his ears are too small. Um, but I think he's a good he's a good looking Batman. He actually looks like a guy in a suit. What, what I've noticed here, of course, as well, is that there were no shadows on the Watchtower until Batman needed to step out of some. <laughs> Batman found a shadow somehow. <laughs> he did it. Yeah, waiting the ang- for the right moment. He's been in that shadow for three days, waiting to come out and say something ominous. Yes, he had to angle himself perfectly in order to, to make it work. Um, but yeah, he just you know he, he makes a fair point. He's saying, like, look, you know, we're not an interdimensional police force. We can't just go to other worlds and solve all their problems. And then he, he starts saying, my city needs me. And Luther, this is fairly typical of Luther from any universe, just starts saying, your city, how dare you? Look at you, surrounded by your peers, secure in your successes, admired by a doting population. Do you understand what I'm trying to tell you? On my world, there's me. Heroism is a dirty word. And I love the idea that Lex Luthor is the only superhero that exists on his world. Yeah. Um, and I guess it's like it's a small thing, but like this story is told from the perspective of this other world so Mm. you know following luther on his journey it would be absolutely incredible to him to see another world which was so bright and shining despite all the tragedies and that there are actually tons of superheroes over here like it, it would be well again as we're going to see it would be as shocking to him as what the jla discover would be to them i think you can also infer from this that the crime syndicate are so powerful that any other resistance that has arisen on their world, presumably counterparts to the supervillains that already exist in the DC universe, have been put down very quickly. Mm. They've just been dealt with and presumably killed. I mean, there's a really nice, there's a really nice point here where, like, obviously Batman makes a fair point, and. Luther, in turn, is, you know, kind of like, you know, railing against him, saying, like, you know, how dare you, you arrogant bastard? You know, like, you have to help me. Um, But he, he does say a nice line. He says, have you no idea what it is to be alone against a world of shadows? And as we might see in a couple of pages, he might not realise it, but I think Batman is aware of what it's like to be alone <laughs> against a yeah. world of shadows. <laughs> 
And Superman asks what help Luther needs, and Luther says, I just need 48 hours. I've worked everything out. We can change everything. And Batman again just says, we can't spare the staff, to which Wonder Woman says, look, let's let's vote on this. And then we cut to an incredibly stylized meeting room of the JLA, kind of lit, kind of by the cosmic equivalent of a single light bulb. Um, yeah. And yeah, and the JLA is having a good old-fashioned classic ethical debate. I love it when the JLA does this. Yeah, and basically Superman's saying, look, if we stand for justice, that can't just be justice on our world. Surely we have to help people everywhere. And Flash and Green Lantern are both like, yep, I'm in. Green Lantern even says, surely we've at least once in your superhero career, you have to make a trip to an antimatter universe. And I love how Wally, again, Wally doesn't, it's a combination of Wally just being like a really nice guy and knowing what's right. But also I kind of imagine it like Wally being a professional superhero, you know, as in like he has very little else going on is kind of like, yeah, I'm in. Yep. You know, it's like, I'm a superhero. This is the shit we do. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Let's go. Let's just no convincing required. And then Aquaman says, look, I agree with you, Superman, but I'm the king of Atlantis. I have duties here. I can't go, but you know where to reach me if it gets out of control. So again, saying to me, Aquaman isn't fully in the league here. <laughs> yeah, but again, he's not as aggressively individualistic as he is in like his first appearance during um, Hy- the Hyperclan story arc. It just it feels very much like the Aquaman from uh, the Zauriel story in American Dreams. Yes, yes, definitely. Yeah, like he's... He's he's not a complete team player, but he's not being a complete dick either. Yeah, yeah. And and Wonder Woman is like, you know, well look, he's he's one man against a world of evil. Like, how can we? How could we refuse him? And, you know, obviously, sorry, Superman says that as well. But like, yeah, of course, Superman and Wonder Woman. There was never any doubt. Um, and and, and Batman is just standing there, or sitting there with like his his fingers kind of steepled in front of his face, <laughs> kind of thinking deeply. Yeah, and then he just comes out and says, Aquaman stays, John stays, because Batman realises, okay, Superman's going, but we need power, someone powerful to stay behind, just in case. John stays, I'll take the vacation. Yeah, and then we cut to uh, the JLA on board Luther's ship, which is kind of taking off, and um, we get the nice little twist where uh, Luther being the one who discovered the bridge between the matter and antimatter universes, points out that his Earth is Earth-1. Ergo, he has called the DC universe Earth-2. I think that might be a little a nice little reference on Morrison's part to the Silver Age, when you had the first crossover between the Justice League and the Justice Society. Because obviously the Justice Society, the Golden Age characters, they were there first, but because they weren't the current iterations of the characters, they were labelled Earth-2. And also, I I think this kind of reminds me of a nice little joke which may have popped up in JLA Avengers, if I remember it correctly, where I think think that's the story it's in, where like a couple of characters from each team are arguing about which Earth is Earth 1. And which one is Earth 2? Yeah, I remember that. That is JLA Avengers. I can't, I've got a feeling Hawkeye's involved. He usually is, but. Yeah, because of course, like each. you would refer to your own universe as, a, as Earth as Earth One, of course. Yeah. So, um, and it also reminds me a little bit of Future Armor, where 
<laughs> they get there is a second universe which is exactly the same as our universe except everybody wears a cowboy hat and, <laughs> and he goes oh what so are there an infinite number of universes goes, no just for two <laughs> that is a really good gag and now i want to watch futurama again and 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 of course like this is just this at this point in dc history this is before dc became absolutely obsessed with the number 52 following the 52 event and then the new 52 and now we've got 52 universes with this new numbering convention and multiversity which morrison was also involved in so again this numbering system did not stick it's not worth thinking about this is a self-contained little story but god yeah they lent in hard with numbering their universes yes they really did because in the marvel universe it's like it's earth 616 and i like that because they just gave it a number well, I think that was Alan Moore did that in the pages of Captain Britain. Oh, um, it yeah. was the because uh, obviously Captain Britain that lent into the idea that there were different Captain Britons in all different universes, and it was them and the, the the sort of central Captain Britain core that numbered the universes, and the Marvel universe just happened to be six one six, and that then spilled over and carried over. And Marvel tried to ditch that a few times. I said no, it's the Prime Universe and things like that. But the fans know it's six one six. That's just sticking now. The Marvel universe will always be six one six. And also, I think in in various iterations of the DC multiverse, they have lent very hard into Earth One being mm. special in some way, as yeah. if like it is the cornerstone of the universe. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but as as um, as Luther's ship blasts back across the matter antimatter barrier, you have Jean and Aquaman left behind, and Aquaman's like Jean. I mean, if if there are complications, you know, the implication being that there's only two of them, and Jean just goes, "Then let us pray you and I are the equal of them, Arthur." And then we cut to Earth One, uh, I guess. Earth, then, yeah, Earth One. Uh, and I'm going to call it Earth Crime. I think for the rest <laughs> of the series, just to avoid complications. Earth Earth Crime. Um, <laughs> and I guess we are in Gotham. We are, and we have an unnamed, for the moment, police commissioner shouting into a megaphone that he doesn't deal with Boss Gordon or the Owl Man. So I guess on Earth Crime, Commissioner Gordon is. Crime Boss Gordon. Yeah, and it's raining, and because it's, it's, it's Gotham, and 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 it's evil Gotham. Um, which God knows, I can only imagine what that would be like. Um, and yeah, and we get a close up of a business card, which this police commissioner is holding, which has an owl symbol on it. Yeah, so. Owlman has called a meeting and the commissioners just showed up basically to say, I'm not dealing with you. There's nothing we want from you, but I want to take you down. So show yourself. So Owlman, I guess, kills the other two policemen from afar. Yeah, they both just drop to the ground in spatters of blood. And then appears behind the commissioner and says, you, you know, yes, I'm here. You should have traded cuts the commissioner with a blade and then leaps off the roof and dives into a dumpster, but one that he's put an airbag in. 
Yeah, so right off the bat, aside from like the murder and the mutilation, very Batman-esque. It's a very cool Batman-style scene, certainly. And I've got to say, I know we haven't had quite a proper look at it yet, but I love the Owlman costume. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. It looks incredible. And again, like if anyone was going to redesign these characters, Quietly was... Because the old Crime Syndicate costumes aren't great. No, no. The, certainly, the, the only one that really sticks in my mind is the Ultraman one, which was a blue with a red U on it. There was no real flair to it. It didn't, it didn't scream evil Superman. It was pretty generic. And I think also, um, it always struck me that I, I, I um, it's like Quietly had, had had recently discovered like um, reflective metal visors. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> like Johnny Quick, Power Ring and uh, Owlman all have some kind of amazing goggles or visor in some way. Yeah. But yeah, but the yeah. Owlman costume is pretty badass. Um and he and after kind of picking himself out of uh, this dumpster, there are two um Gotham City Police Department uh armed troopers pointing guns at him. And he says Look, I've got razor rings and blood seekers. Smart guys run. Smart guys or dead guys. And we're one about of them says, get... "You're nailed, mother." And we're about to get a bit of a rude word, PJ. Mother, mother. What could be the end of that? But before he can finish, he's incinerated. Yeah, and our man looks up, and we have a shadow above him, and a brief kind of uh, a very small reflection in his goggles, and then we see Superwoman carrying him as they they fly high above the city and uh our man is holding like a, a kind of cd in his hand and uh again despite the fact they've just murdered a few people it's very just kind of like business-like chat a superwoman's like so what was that about and our man just goes 30 cops support wayne in the gcpd satan knows where he finds them but they're on this disc and as soon as we've dealt with the crime syndicate emergency I'm going to find him. So the commissioner of the GCPD in on Earth Crime is Wayne. Mm. But which one? But which one? And yeah, I I have no idea how. In a, I, again, this this world is 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 both fascinating and baffling because it's like a world where concepts of good and evil are inverted, where there is a police force. But I'm guessing it's in the pocket or it's entirely run by the crime boss of Gotham. But within the police department, just as in the real world, you might have crooked cops. Here you have lawful cops, I guess. There's like a small subsection who are loyal to this Commissioner Wayne fellow. Yeah, the implication is that He's like the one good cop in Gotham and he wants to clean clean the streets up, which is difficult in a universe like this. And it's weird also because the crime in Gotham is apparently incredibly powerful. And yet, our man, to some extent, is still an outsider because if he didn't have complete control of Gotham, he wouldn't need to root out the few good cops, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but, but he, he and Superwoman fly off and they start making out. Mm, yes, a bit of sexy time. This isn't your daddy's JLA. And uh, they're 
Superwoman says Ultraman will see, and Owlman says maybe he likes to watch. So you know that this is a perversion of everything we know. And also, it's interesting to note that this version, well, this Owlman isn't just a carbon copy of Batman. Like, he, no. he appears to have definitely a sadistic streak, but I guess like a like a mis- not mischievous, almost like a oh, I don't know, I can't quite find the word, PJ. But He's like a troublemaker. He, yeah, like it's like he seems to delight in winding people up and scurring things. Yes. Very much so. He's 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 an anarchist in in a way. In, in yeah. that he just he he wants there to be problems and issues. But yeah, but we cut suddenly to the meeting of the CSA, the Crime Syndicate of America, in a very different setting. Um they have a nice big branded table though, which I can approve of. <laughs> yeah, and they're sitting around it with uh, it's not you know the JLA's table is is a circle. This is a really weird shape with points coming off it and almost like a like a, a policeman's badge, I guess, at the top, which then flares out at the bottom. It's weird. It'll be it's an very incredibly odd. uncomfortable table to sit at. Yes, I would imagine. Um, but yeah, but Ultraman is conducting the meeting, and he basically says. He's just catching the rest of the team up on the situation that Luther, who is the greatest threat to their organization, has escaped into a matter universe. And he goes, well, do we panic or should we be happy that he's out of the way for a bit? And Power Ring says, well, if Luther's out of town, that's good for us, isn't it? And then his ring says, theoretically, such a matter universe would include matter duplicates of the stars and planets, including the Earth. And Power Ring's like, didn't say that, that was the ring. <laughs> They're all drinking as well, I should point out. They, all, they yeah. all have, if not a cocktail, then a, a stiff drink in front of them. But I, I love the idea that Power Ring doesn't have maybe so much control of his ring and that it has a mind of its own and will speak up. And Ultraman agrees with the ring. He's like, yes, this is another world we could conquer. At which I, point Power Ring pretends it was him all along. And I do, I do like this because we're not going to spend a massive amount of time with... Power Ring and Johnny Quick. No. So we don't get a massive amount of characterization. But I like how Power Ring, being Kyle's counterpart, looks completely different right off the bat, but also is a complete sycophant. Yeah. Like has doesn't have an original thought in his body and is like he's like, Oh, well, we should be happy that Luther's gone. And then the ring's like, well, actually, this could, you know, maybe there's profit to be made here. He's like, oh yeah, totally, totally. That's what I was saying. Yeah, Ultraman's totally right. We should, we should try and exploit this. He's such a creep. And then Ultraman says, basically says, look, if Luther wants a challenge, he'll get one. And then he says, think of this matter universe as just one more vulnerable freighter laden with treasure. Hoist the Jolly Roger high and prepare to board. To which Owlman goes, why were you doing the pirate talk? <laughs> <laughs> I it does it does raise fascin like give, gives you like a fascinating insight into how this team would even function. It's like they're all a bunch of sharks. It's like they'd all stab each other in the back at any opportunity, but they they function despite all the biting and betrayals, I guess because it's mutually beneficial. Like Yeah. It is 
it's fascinating to think how it would even work. So now we see them in their trophy room now, and I, I find this really interesting. So you've got the head of the Statue of Liberty in their trophy room with a hole right in the forehead, presumably <laughs> where Ultraman has punched through it or something. You and also, then, yeah, yeah, the whatever their predecessors were called, the Crime League of America, maybe. They, you've got costumes in cases of Doctor Noon, <laughs> White Cat. And, and Spaceman. Spaceman, <laughs> who I'm guessing is meant to be Captain Comet? No, he's he's our man. Our man's counterpart. Our man? Yeah. Oh, Starman. Is he meant to be Starman? No, our man. Why would our man's counterpart be called Spaceman? Because the opposite of time is space. Oh my god. If he'd been called Time Man, that would have made <laughs> that would have made it easier for me. <laughs> um, but no, uh, White Cat is of course the counterpart of uh, Black Canary. Black Canary. Um, Doctor Noon is of course uh, Doctor Midnight. That's my favourite. I think Doctor Noon. Who that just I'm, sounds like a dude's name. But I'm guessing his powers mean he can't see in the dark. He can only <laughs> see in broad daylight. I can only see when it's light. Yes, everyone has that. It's called sight. Um, and also interestingly, we have a couple of statues which they've nicked so we have a male no we have a female version of michelangelo's david and we have a male version of the venus de milo yeah and there's a coffin just sitting there on the floor for some reason yeah and there's also a couple oh interestingly i had to kind of open the spine of my book a little bit but there are a couple of helmets Oh yeah, one of which vaguely looks a, looks a tiny bit like Kyle's mask. Yeah, a little bit. A little know. bit. Don't, I'm that's not probably sure. not worth unpackings that one. But uh, Owlman is basically starting to provoke Ultraman. He says, "Look, matter duplicates of ourselves. What does that imply? Come on, it was your technology Luther used." And Ultraman's just, "I'm going to speak to you after I've spoken to Superwoman. One of these days, you're going to go too far, and you're not going to come back." And Owlman just gives like a shit-eating smile and goes, sure, until then, I have the negatives, remember? <laughs> and Ultraman just goes, one day. <laughs> like, and that's, that's where we're going to leave it. <gasps> Gasp. Gasp. Dun, dun, dun. Is this the end of the crime syndicate? Tune in next week. But that is a packed beginning to the story. It's amazing, isn't it? Like it, and again, paced very differently because it's uh, it is an original graphic novel rather than uh, a series of monthlies. So they can take their time a bit more. Now I wonder if the page count was set by DC because if you include the cover, like front and back, it's a hundred pages. So if they said, "Look, well, Grant, we're going to give you a hundred pages, do what you like within that," or if Morrison just wrote turned the script in and went, this is what I've done. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting, actually. Because, um, and I, um, um, we were, we, just before we went on air, I, um, you know, PJ, you, you very kindly worked out good points to kind of break in the story. And um, I happen to have uh, a spreadsheet where I have broken down this book page by page and scene by scene. He with. does that with every comic. It's I just... do that. I can't really. I can't really enjoy a comic until I've properly uh, kind of documented it. Um, 
But no, the, the reason I the reason I had that is completely unrelated to um, uh, us doing the podcast is when I was writing Afterlife Inc. Volume Six, which is uh, currently currently uh, serialized on its website right now. Um, I plug, wanted, plug, plug 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 plug. I wanted to tell a more straightforward story, just like a one and done hundred pages in and out. And I thought to myself, what book do I own that does that very well? And I picked up JLA Earth 2. Anyway, so yeah, so I'm just saying the reason I broke, I went to the effort of breaking down JLA Earth 2 was simply that I really hold it up as a very well done and neatly structured story, basically. And yeah, I used it as inspiration. I think if you're going to be inspired by, by a story, it's a good one to go for. But PJ, I mean, you know, we are a third of the way in. Uh, this book was designed to be enjoyed in, I guess, one kind of sitting. We're we're taking this little break now. But what are you like? How how do you feel about it? What what are your thoughts? I, it's taking the first third. This is a book you can very much break into three equal acts, and this first act, which is just finished. This is where the ad break would come on TV. Uh, is very much it's set up, but it's very, very good, very interesting setup. And you know, last night I did sit down and read the whole thing in one go because I didn't want to do this just just covering a third at a time without having the rest of it fresh in my memory. So I did read it all in one go, and it does work so well as one story. But but yeah, this first act of it is very clever, very interesting, and pretty unique. I'd say it fits in with Morrison's JLA, but it also works as its own thing and, and is very much, it, it works as a standalone very uniquely in a way. I I choose to dream of a different world, an Earth 2, if you will, PJ, where Morrison and Quietly continued to put out standalone Hundred page JLA <laughs> stories, and that is a wonderful world to imagine. Like I would, if it was more like this, I'd be overjoyed. Like I, I, I really like this actually. Um, and I, I don't know. It's a good story. Like it's an incredible story. Uh, but it's very, it's just very efficiently told. Yeah, it's not very dialogue heavy. Oddly enough. Um, it tells a lot of the story. It does a lot of the world building and a lot of the storytelling in a very organic way. Um, there's a lot of concepts dropped on the reader, but you're kind of learning them as you're encountering them. And it doesn't, you don't, well, you know, while there's a little bit of a character going like, hey, I came from this universe and now I've arrived in your universe, um, it doesn't insult your intelligence. No. And. I li- it leaves enough gaps that your brain kind of rushes in to fill it. So I don't know, like both worlds feel very, very interesting, like very rich. Like again, like all the crap that's going on in alternate Gotham, which we've only just seen a, a glimpse, a brief glimpse of, is is fascinating. Like it, it just raises so many interesting questions. I think it's very telling as well that in that scene, the action is... It's very much, you know, 
regular Batman. It feels a lot like Batman. It's just the what's being said is very different. But in terms of the actual action beats, Owlman and Batman, they're so similar in terms of how they go about things. So Owlman is lethal, Batman less so. But I think it, it, it's it's a really well-crafted alternate version of the character and how to do an evil version of of Batman in a parallel universe. Yeah, and it actually, and again, this is why, you know, Morrison at the top of, you know, the top of their game, like in terms of big concepts in a in a very engaging manner. Now, sometimes it kind of, it can tip over a little bit. I know um, things like Final Crisis are not the, not particularly reader friendly. Um, I think this is the perfect balance um and also it's like it would be so easy to go i'm going to tell an evil justice league story and I, god you could workshop that in 5 minutes yeah. you know just like oh you know batman but he cackles a bit and he kills people you know it, it it writes itself so i think the fact that like these are this is an evil version of justice league but they're different enough to be interesting. Yeah. Like they're not just direct carbon copies of the of the leaguers. Yeah, very much so. It and the, I, after this, they're used very sparingly. I think their next appearance is a cameo in JLA Avengers, and then after that, I think there's only one more JLA story they appeared in in the main book. And I've got a, that's the Busick story. I think that he did as a sequel to JLA Avengers. Which I, and I have to say, uh, I'm not a fan of. If I'm honest, um, I, I I don't really remember it. I read it once, and I only remember some very brief bits of it. To be honest, but well, it's it's weird, isn't it? Because again, I don't want to get into too many uh, spoilers about um, Earth Two because we've we've still got some a lot to cover. Yeah, but I think Earth Two is very subversive in the way that it does the classic, oh, our heroes are meeting evil counterparts of themselves. Like, that's yeah. a bit of a comic trope. So you don't quite get the story beats you would imagine you get. Yeah. And I think the Busick storyline, where he revisits these characters, it it was an attempt to tell a more conventional crossover between uh, between the, the two teams like a very much like a who would win sort of scenario and um, i am a big fan of, of kurt Busick, but i i'm not a particular fan of that story yeah. i it it is nowhere near as interesting or again subversive as this one is there's an element in earth to that i think we will we'll have to wait until our third episode on it uh, to discuss cause it's sort of part of the resolution to the story. But there's an, there's an element of it that I remember most other read-throughs of it going, oh, I don't really know how I feel about that. That seems a bit... Mm. And I think it's because I didn't fully understand it. Whereas when I read it last night, I had this moment of, oh, oh, I see. I get that. <laughs> I understand that what he's what they're saying. Sorry, what, what Morrison and Quietly are saying there. Um, yeah. And I think that's... Uh, that's maybe something that Busick also didn't fully grasp what Morrison was doing with Earth 2. Well, 
And, and I'll be honest with you, like, I think when I first read Earth 2, there's a part of me that found it a little frustrating. Yep. Like, you know, as, particularly as, 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 as a teenager, uh, and wanting my comics to be more than anything cool, you know, I think, and again, don't do spoilers just yet, but again, my, myself as a reader back then, I wanted the traditional story. Like, I wanted these characters to have, say, a big almighty punch-up in the mm. final act. And I think I felt a bit robbed that that, again, that it... Spoilers, not trying to spoil anything, but it doesn't quite go that way. But like a fine wine, I think my palate has improved a bit and I can actually now appreciate just how clever this story is. Also, I... I never really felt robbed of that because there is an absolutely stunning action sequence in, <laughs> to, in it is, the third act. It is great. It is. I'm a big fan of... This isn't really a crossover as such because these characters have only just been introduced, but I love it when the implications of something are played out fully. Like the characters actually think about what does it mean. Like So it isn't just like this universe versus this universe. Like... We're going to see more of it, but there's like genuine thought and oh, I don't know, like Morrison has really thought about what it means for all the characters and how these worlds would operate. Like it's like a, it's like an expedition. If the, the JLA are really going into a new world and they're approaching it in a very smart way. Yes. Yeah, they, they really are. And, and even though, and Batman even putting contingency saying, well, we're not all going. We're leaving... Aquaman's already volunteered, but we're leaving Jean because he's power. Uh, and then fine, we will go. And I think it helps as well that Luther's gone, look, I've got this plan. It's 48 hours. We're, we're in. We do this. You leave. Sorted. Um, but that's it, that they go in with a plan, uh, which we will see come to fruition next time, I suppose. Well, that well, well, actually, and, and you know, to to take a moment to praise Kurt Busiek, uh it's something that JLA Avengers does. Yeah, you know, actually taking the time to think: if I'm going into another universe, will my powers work the same way? You know, like we, I like that sort of thing when someone's thought a bit more about the implications of it. Yes, yeah, hundred percent agree, and I think that's something that that Morrison does very well here in uh, in Earth 2. And not even just powers, there's a lot of smaller, more intricate things that, that Morrison plays within this story that are just done beautifully. Again, because it's, it's an old trope, you know, team meets eat evil counterparts. Like, it's been done, and it's been done, and it's been done. And you wouldn't really think that there was a way of doing it in a different way, but Again, it is achieved here. Like, this is a very, very weird and unique and just distinctive take on an old comic idea. And actually, when you think about it, Morrison does all three in his run. Uh, sorry, in their run. Um, because you get this story where it's evil parallel universe versions of the JLA. And in Rock of Ages, you get the evil JLA, which is the Injustice oh, Gang. And... Yeah. Then there's the evil clone versions, which also appeared in Rock of Ages with the hard light holograms. Indeed, yes, no, quite. And and as we said when we were going over Rock and Ages, Rock of Ages, they're all also 
slightly weird takes on the trope. Yeah. You know, doesn't quite give you what you were expecting. Wait, it's like it gives you what you need, but not what you wanted. It, yeah, it's not what you thought you wanted, and then you get to the end of the story and you're like, but I am satisfied. That's that's what I actually wanted, and I didn't know that. I swear that was a bit... I can't remember who said it, but I swear that was some advice I read once about writing. It's like, never give, never give the audience what they want. Give them what they don't know they wanted. And then, yeah, you, you, you're talking gold at that point. Unless you don't know what they don't know they want, and then... And then give them what they want. Yeah. I uh, I actually uh, way back when when I was when I was a wee laddie, I was learning the piano, and I had a piano teacher who said to me, "The best songs are the ones you don't immediately like, and the ones that kind of stick with you the longest." And I've always remembered that, and I think it's the same with comics because when I first read this. I was a bit like, ooh, I'm not too sure about this. This is yep, a bit weird same. and different. But again, it, it, it planted a seed in my brain and I, I just couldn't stop thinking about it. And yeah, now, and then you come back to it time and time again and it just gets better every time you read it. It really does. It really does. Like last night when I read it, I think that was my favourite <laughs> time I've read it. <laughs> oh no, it's only downhill from here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When we come back and do the second part of it next time, I'll be a bit, oh, that was disappointing. Well, PJ, have we have we wrung every last drop of of wit and whimsy out of this book? Well, the first third of it, uh, <laughs> but we're in this third. unique situation where we're effectively taking one issue of JLA and splitting it over three episodes of our podcast. So, yeah, because you know clearly we didn't have enough content to work with. So, so we'll, we'll almost certainly return to the first third of the book when we talk about the second and third thirds. Yes. Sorry, it's like I heard the word third so many times it stopped making any sense. Oh, it's lost me. all meaning. Yeah. Well, I'm glad we could kill language. <laughs> we've achieved we've achieved one small thing. That's my goal as a writer. <laughs> you know, when they do the retrospective of your work in kind of like 20 years' time, they'll be like, Montgomery's greatest achievement was throwing the alphabet out the window. You know, the moment the moment his comics became a, a, a broad, abstract spattering of paint and and um, and uh, convoluted symbolism. You know, it's you're, you're the less long a comic game. and more a, a mood board. It's the long game I'm playing. Well, language and culture in safe hangs, PJ. Um, <laughs> with that in mind, and assuming we have said all we can say. For this episode, uh, I guess it falls on me to uh, give a massive shout out and thanks to Gav Mitchell for drawing our incredible cover artwork, which, like Earth 2, gets better the more I look at it. <laughs> and to Elliot Red for composing and performing our amazing theme tune, which this week is called Crime. <laughs> it's just called <laughs> Crime. Crime Normally it's called Justice, so this week it's called Crime. Oh my god, yeah, we should play it backwards. <laughs> Actually... Mm, that's an idea. Maybe, I, maybe I will. Um, and uh, if you've enjoyed uh, listening to uh, PJ and I ramble on in our own little way, you can find us on the social medias. Uh, our details are in the description. PJ, is there anything you'd like to shout about or say or you know draw attention to? No, that's wonderful. <laughs> well, well, in which ca- in which case, PJ. Uh, could you please do us the honours and uh, see us off safely 
into into that good night. I mean, it's it's to be continued this week, folks. Join us on the next episode of the CSA Cast, cast spelled with a K. 